MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday, so we are bringing you a Vault episode. This one originally aired on October 4th, 2022. It's part two of our series on Elf Shot. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And we're back with part two of our series on Elf Shot. Now, uh, this is an idea we introduced in part one. If you haven't listened to that yet, you should go back, check that one out first. But basically, Elf Shot is a, uh, what would you say, Rob? Like, it's a complex of interlocking folk beliefs, not a single belief. Uh, but it's found especially in the British Isles. And uh, essentially centering on the idea of fairies or elves attacking mortal humans and especially their livestock with supernatural weapons. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot going on in it, as we discussed in the, the first episode. I mean, on one hand, there, there's the interpretation of artifacts, uh, artifacts that uh, from various time periods, uh, both ancient and relatively recent. Uh, there's also the uh, attempt to understand mysterious ailments, mostly in, in livestock, but sometimes in human beings as well. And then various folk traditions getting wrapped up into these scripts. And it's also, it seems to be highly regional too. Uh, so it's, uh, it's not, there's not just one elf arrow script. We have multiple scripts. It, it ends up tying into folk medicine and so forth as well. Yeah, and that folk medicine aspect is, is is very interesting. I want to come back to that in just a minute. So in the last episode, we, we did talk about some direct accounts of folk beliefs about elf shot, uh, especially in Scotland, I think is where a lot of these accounts came from. And they included things like, okay, you'd have a story where a calf suddenly falls ill and dies with no apparent explanation. And then the farmer confirms that elf shot was the cause because... 
He and his neighbor open up the cow's body and they find a hole in its heart, even though there was no hole in the hide. So it must have been some kind of supernatural fairy weapon that can pierce through the hide without actually breaking it and strike only the internal organs. And then, of course, when it was believed that there was an injury of this kind caused by an elf or a fairy weapon, uh, there were plenty of magical remedies. And Rob, can you characterize what some of the main themes in these remedies were? Yeah, some of the main themes included, of course, being able to fetch either the elf arrow or uh, or have an elf arrow that you found or elf arrows that were in the possession of uh, of the town or local community and using those in the treatment. Uh, oftentimes this would take the form of of immersing them in water and then using that, that water uh, either as a, a drink for the afflicted or as something that is rubbed on the afflicted or poured on the site of the wounding, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But again, there are a number of different versions of this, and, and so various wrinkles get added depending on which tradition you're looking at and which account. Yeah, other things were just like, oh, hey, mix up some gunpowder with some eggs and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that, and then feed that to the cow. Right. Delicious. Uh, but anyway, I wanted to address a question that came up while we were talking uh, talking last time. I didn't have the answer to it at the time, so I decided to look it up before we recorded this episode. And the question is... Is there such a thing as the placebo effect for non-human animals? Of course, the placebo effect in humans is something that often comes up when we're talking about, uh, well, talking about medicine in any context, but it's especially important when you're talking about like the history of pre-scientific medicine. Like, why did people think that soaking a stone arrowhead in water and then pressing it to their skin had actually healed them of a disease? Like, if you have a you know, any a tumor or a bacterial infection or something, we can be relatively confident that this intervention does not actually shrink the tumor or kill the bacteria. And yet people often thought interventions like this had healed them. So what made them think that? I think some of that can be chalked up to uh, a concept that we did an episode about, I think last year it was, uh, a statistical phenomenon called regression toward the mean or regression to the mean. But you can also think of uh, this concept as returning to the baseline. So uh, as a quick explainer for that, imagine you suddenly get a pain in your foot and you've never had that pain before. And uh, you're like, ah, it really hurts. I don't know what to do. But your friend says, well, I know what to do. You have to sing a Gregorian chant and then you have to lick the morning dew from a spider's web. So, You try that out, you want your foot to stop hurting, and then what do you know, sometime after that, your foot does stop hurting. Now, in a situation like this, we we really all have a tendency to think something has been proved here, like, ah, the spider do did work. Uh, But actually, how do you know that your foot wouldn't have stopped hurting on its own just as soon if you didn't do any of that stuff? Uh, In fact, the whole point is that your foot doesn't usually hurt. The state of pain is an outlier. That's an anomalous condition. So things going back to normal on on a certain time scale is a totally expected outcome, all things being equal. And regression to the mean is especially important in medicine because it tends to be 
specifically when we're in an anomalous condition, a condition that is not normal for us, that we seek medical interventions. So if you want to know if a medical intervention actually works or not, you have to uh, compare its efficacy against a, say, placebo uh, control group instead of just giving somebody a treatment and saying, did you get better? If you do that, you don't know if they would have gotten better anyway. Having the comparison between the two groups gives you confidence in the efficacy. Mm-hmm. But on top of just the regression to the mean as a, as a baseline effect, you've also got psychological effects, uh, where if you actually compare people who receive an intervention like a, a medicine or a ritual or a doctor's visit uh, versus people who don't receive any intervention, sometimes people who receive an intervention have better outcomes on average, even if there's no way that intervention is actually doing anything, if it's like you know pressing the arrowhead to your skin. Uh, this might be considered the pure placebo effect, improved outcomes associated with an intervention, even though it's not doing anything mechanistically or chemically to solve the problem. And though the placebo effect shows up for a range of conditions and treatments, it seems to be especially powerful for conditions that are modulated by the brain, such as the perception of pain and other types of discomfort. So to bring it back to the question of, of elf shot cattle, could it be possible that a non-human animal benefits from the placebo effect of a magical cure in some way, even though they can't understand the concept of medicine or develop expectations that the magical cure would heal them. Uh, and the, you know, the thing I was wondering about with this is there's evidence that some placebo effects in humans are created, not so much by the expectation that the treatment is efficacious, but by the reassurance felt in the presence of a doctor or nurse who has a good bedside manner. And I, I thought, well, maybe it's possible that animals could be calmed or soothed by certain kinds of human attention, even if they're not able to understand that it is for the intended purpose of healing. So anyway, I went looking this up, and I found an interesting article by Emily Anthes, who is also the author of a book we've talked about on the show before called The Great Indoors. It's all about mm. the, the effects of uh, living and spending time indoors. But uh, this was an article published in The Atlantic in 2019 called A Crucial Blind Spot in Veterinary Medicine. So the top line answer here is a clear yes. There is such a thing as the placebo effect in non-human animals in veterinary medicine, but it probably works by different means than the human version of the placebo effect. So here's an example. Anthus begins by uh, talking about a particular study of treatments for canine epilepsy, epilepsy in dogs. Uh, this research was being carried out in the early 2000s. I think this was in the year 2003. And uh, the citation here is uh, the Journal of Veterinary Medicine. The article was called Placebo Effect in Canine Epilepsy Trials. And the authors were Munyana, Zhang, and Patterson, uh, eventually published in 2010. And the story is that the researchers were testing an anticonvulsant drug called uh, levetiracetam, and it was intended to curtail epileptic seizures in dogs. So in the test group, the group that was actually getting the drug, 86% of dogs uh, of their owners reported a reduction in seizure frequency, which bodes very well for the drug. Mm -hmm. But then the study also happened to have a placebo control group, which were receiving a dummy treatment that was supposed to do nothing. And in that group, 79% also saw a reduction in reported seizures. 79 compared to 86. That's that's impressive. 
Right. Well, it would tend to make you doubt that it, that the test group, is, that, that it's actually the drug that is making the difference. So at the time of this study, uh, Anthes notes that the double-blind placebo-controlled trials were not all that common in veterinary medicine, which uh, makes sense on one hand, because again, like non-human animals are not thought to be able to develop expectations about a about a drug treatment or the efficacy of medicine. So how could you expect a placebo effect to exist in dogs? But it's a good thing the study did use such a controlled design because otherwise the medicine would have looked really good until you realize that fake medicine leads to results that look about the same or almost as good. I guess it's just the healing power of uh, pill pockets, right? <laughs> My God, you can never doubt the man. The, those things stink so much, and dogs love them. <laughs> what do they put in those things? Do Do you work at a pill pocket factory? Tell. Oh, maybe we don't want to know what goes in a pill pocket. That would be. <laughs> that's Halloween content. I have not had a good uh, run with with feline pill pockets. Um, oh, uh, I'm sorry. And uh, not to say they don't. You know, they work in some some cats, and s- some cats are not crazy about them. My cat will uh, spit it out and then like dissect it. And, uh, and, and some brands of pill pockets, she just doesn't want to want a piece of anyway. She's like, no, not eating that. So, do you ever use the trick? Uh, th- this this worked for us in the past. Uh, where if if the animal is skeptical of the pill pocket with the pill in it, you first have to give them an empty pill pocket that has no pill in it, so they get used to like, oh yeah, I can just eat this straight up. And then the second one or the third one you give them, I mean, that's a lot of pill pockets if you're stacking it up. But if you're desperate. You can try the empty pill pocket first to lower their defenses. Well, you'd think that would work, but uh, we ended up using the water syringe to just blast it into the back of her throat. Uh, mm. And that seems to work well. Again, and that's a method that's not going to work for every cat either. So it's, uh, it, it's tough getting the meds in these animals sometimes. Oh, and I should also note that, so the main study uh, Anthes is talking about here in this article is in dogs, but uh, she also cites studies that have reported placebo effects in cats and in horses. Hmm. Uh, so anyway, how on earth could this be? Like, again, we're assuming that dogs themselves are not developing expectations that a drug will be effective. I think that's a very fair assumption. They don't understand what's going on. How on earth could such a strong placebo effect manifest? And a number of ideas are discussed in this article. One is one we already talked about, regression to the mean, right? People are more likely to enroll in a clinical trial for their dog's epilepsy if seizures have been especially bad lately, and conditions like epilepsy tend to sort of wax and wane on their own anyway. So, you know, you could enroll the dog at a time when their seizures are bad, and then that would just tend to, by the law of averages, give way to a period where they return to the baseline and have fewer seizures. Hmm. So again, a good reason to have a placebo control uh, group to compare your test group to. Uh, Second thing that I thought was interesting, Anthes cites something called the Hawthorne effect, which is the idea that people often behave differently when they know they're being studied or observed. Uh, I think the name of this effect comes from uh, some anecdote about industrial productivity research, which found all kinds of spurious effects for things like, oh, what would happen if we change the lighting in this room? Are workers more productive? Oh, it turns out they are. Uh, But then one ex post facto explanation for all these spurious results is just that when employees know that they're part of an experiment, they are more productive because they know they're being closely scrutinized. Hmm. 
Now, this would not apply so much to the dogs themselves, but probably to the owners. So in the case of the epilepsy study in dogs, Anthes writes that, uh, that all of the dogs in the study were already on at least one other anti-seizure medication, and the uh, levetiracetam was being studied as a supplemental drug. So one possibility is that once enrolled in a study, pet owners may have been more consistent about making sure their dogs got all doses of their pre-existing, pre-tested epilepsy medication on time. Hmm. Other possible explanations. Uh, what about more attentive veterinary care? It's possible that while enrolled in the study, uh, the animals were, were were getting special attention from, from vets, and this would be uh, partially in line with the explanation I was guessing about beforehand something roughly parallel to the effect of a reassuring doctor or nurse. Uh, and I think it is a, a pre-existing finding that sometimes gentle, affectionate attention from humans can help animals like dogs and horses show fewer symptoms of, uh, of discomfort or anxiety and things like that. In some cases, you could actually have classical conditioning, uh, probably it's hard to see how it would apply to this case, but Anthes writes, quote, For example, rats that have regularly been getting insulin injections will still experience blood sugar changes if they suddenly start receiving saline injections instead. Uh, again, I, I don't think this would apply directly to the epilepsy study, but you could imagine it applying to other studies. But then the primary explanation favored by Anthes in this article is something called the caregiver placebo effect, or the placebo effect by proxy. And this one's pretty straightforward when you think about it. Animals can't report or explain their own symptoms. Understanding the symptoms experienced by an animal, whether that's something like a seizure or whether it's something even more elusive like discomfort or pain, that requires human observation of some kind, usually reports by the pet owners. And the pet owner absolutely can form expectations about improvement based on believing that their pet is getting a treatment of some kind, even though their, their pet might actually be in the placebo arm of the study. They don't know that if it's a good, if it's a well-designed study. Uh, so they think their pet might be receiving the actual drug. They form expectations that the pet will be getting better. And thus they, they interpret everything they see in light of those expectations. Uh, because again, seizure frequency in the, the study in question was measured by owner reports. And you might imagine, well, okay, you know, it's, it's pretty clear whether a dog is having a seizure or not. Well, you might assume that, but in fact, uh, pet owners are not always there to see a seizure take place. Sometimes you have to interpret ambiguous evidence. So uh, the example given uh, in the article is if, if there's a spot of saliva on the floor, is that a sign that the dog had a seizure unobserved and drooled on the floor? Or is that just nothing? Did the dog just drip drool because they just drip drool? Uh, if, if the owners believe their dogs are receiving a drug that will help reduce the seizures, does that actually make the owner less likely to interpret that evidence as evidence of a seizure? Yeah, okay. I see what, you, I see what you're talking about here. Okay. Like, I, well, he's on the medicine, so I guess that's, that's not a seizure drool. That's just drool. Yeah. Uh, the article also cites a veterinary surgeon at the University of Minnesota named Michael uh, Konzemius, who gives a really interesting example from a different study. This was a study uh, on anti-inflammatory treatments for arthritis in dogs, and they did a trial that involved both subjective and objective measurements of uh, how well this anti-inflammatory was doing 
to reduce uh, reduce arthritic pain in the limbs. And so the subjective measure was you would ask both pet owners and veterinarians to observe the dog and rate how much pain they seem to be in. And then there were also objective measures. And this would be uh, having the dog walk on a, on a complicated setup of digital scales to determine how much weight the dogs were putting on each limb while walking. Because if, the do- if one of the dog's limbs is in pain, they will tend to put less weight on that limb. And this study found conflicts between the subjective measures and the objective measures. So in the placebo group, owners and vets who thought the dog might be receiving the drug, but actually they were just getting a placebo, reported improvements. But the objective measure, the scales, did not show improvement. So the in the placebo group, they're getting a fake treatment. The owners and the veterinarians are like, yeah, we think the dog is doing better. But when you put them on the scales, they're still not putting weight on that limb. So the dog itself is not affected by receiving the placebo, but the human observers are. Interestingly, even the veterinarians. This is interesting because when we first raised the, the question about placebo effect in animals, and then when you brought up dogs uh, here, my first thought was, well, dogs are, are highly social animals. Yeah. And so perhaps there is some sort of social dynamic between uh, the way uh, the, their human is treating them. Like maybe yeah. it has to do, maybe it has to do with, with pill pockets, like, oh, I'm getting more snacks or I'm getting more attention or something like that. And then that, of course, would be something that would not seem to readily translate into the, the livestock world. Uh, but what we're looking at here, these are examples that, if I'm not mistaken, would translate rather readily into the, the world of caring for livestock. Yeah, because it's about the human observers, like the cow, whatever is making it into these reports that are in like anthropological texts or, you know, folklore journals or whatever, the cow doesn't actually get to write that report that's made by humans. And it's usually going to be like the farmer saying, yeah, my cow got better or something like that. And they could well be affected by caregiver placebo effect. They form expectations of efficacy and they interpret what they see through that lens Another thing is that uh, this article reports how sometimes animal pain is observable to one human onlooker, but not to another, again, just based on expectations. Like our emotional biases are very strong in this area. And and one example given would be, you know, a pet owner brings an animal into the vet and it was in pain before. And the vet observes that the animal does still appear to be in pain. But the owner says, no, 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 he's not. He's in. He's much better now. Uh, I've been giving him these homeopathic treatments I found. Hmm. And, you know, that's a mix of things like the pet owner, they love their pet. So they desire to believe that the beloved animal is doing better. And then on top of that, you could have like a choice supportive bias, bias to, you know, where you interpret reality in a way that that supports the idea that what you have decided to do was the right decision. So the choice supportive bias says your selected intervention is working. And that may be a magical treatment or a, or a non science based uh, intervention like homeopathy or something. And that can blind you to signs of distress that other unbiased onlookers could see. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, uh, cause at least you, you feel like you're doing something in those cases and, or you're a consultant, you may be consulting experts in the local community community that are also assuring you like, yeah, this is the way to go. This is what will, uh, will get results. Yeah. 
And, and I think the important thing to stress here is that this occurs. You don't have to be like an uncaring, you know, companion to, to your non-human animal of whatever type it is. Like you, you can care very much about their well-being and have this kind of bias. It's not like a result of being cold and unfeeling and cruel. So just a couple final notes on this article. One is just that a big takeaway is you should be careful when observing the symptoms of, of a non-human animal, of a pet or whatever, uh, not to let these kinds of biases prevent you from finding the most effective treatment or solution. You know, whenever possible, try to look for uh, objective pieces of behavioral evidence that remove your subjective evaluation from things. And then the other thing is about the standards of evidence within veterinary medicine. Uh, unfortunately, the history of veterinary studies has included fewer double-blind placebo-controlled trials than human medicine, uh, because again, for a long time, nobody really thought placebo effect would come into play in a major way in veterinary medicine, but it looks like, at least in some cases, it really does, especially when the reported outcomes are based on owners' perceptions. And so this is changing and more more evidentiary standards like this are being introduced into veterinary medicine, but it may mean that the evaluation of the true efficacy of veterinary medicine has, in some cases, especially when the basis is older, uh, maybe uh, on a lower standard of evidence than in human drug trials. But fortunately, that that is changing. But anyway, so I'm bringing all this back to thoughts about how this could relate to like a Scottish farmer in the 17th century who believes that his his cow is sick or his horse is sick because it has been elf shot. It has been you know hit by a fairy arrow and summons someone to provide a magical cure that maybe involves Neolithic flints or egg mixed with gunpowder and healing their cow. I, I, I wonder how it relates to that. I mean, I, I would guess that the, the specifically that last one, the caregiver placebo effect would would be a major factor here. Yeah, yeah, I think so. That seems to be the that that would seem to be the key. Though it also makes me wonder about the idea of a of an inverse thing. This is not addressed in the article at all, but a uh, a caregiver nocebo effect. I mean, it makes me wonder how uh, you could have anxieties or beliefs about danger, other kinds of things taking place purely within the mind of the animal caregiver that give rise to spurious diagnoses of of illness or symptoms in the animal. Like, what if actually the cow is fine? The farmer just gets freaked out about the idea that, oh, no, something bad is happening to my cow for some reason. And, and that brings on the illusion of distress, which could then be treated by some kind of magical intervention. And then what do you know? The cow's fine afterwards. Yeah, this is especially possible given some of the the linked or perceived to be linked activities to elf shot, like the cases where humans did something they shouldn't have to mm. attract the attention of the elves, be it, you know, tromping on sacred ground, cutting down of a sacred tree, um, or, uh, or or so, something of this nature, um, or, or even just the finding of the elf arrow. Like, you know, this was curious. I was out uh, with my cattle. And I found this artifact on the ground. It's clearly an artifact of the elves. Uh, I better check on my cattle and see how they're doing. Uh-oh, mm. this one's not doing too well. Oh, yeah, I didn't make that connection with the picking up of the flint. But yeah, that makes sense. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. 
Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have a, one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, there was a paper we talked about a little bit in the previous episode that I wanted to come back to and just uh, mention a couple of more uh, interesting little stories from. Uh, it was that paper called Elf Shot Cattle by Thomas Davidson that was published in the journal Antiquity in 1956. Remember, this is the one that was collecting a lot of those uh, reports about elf shot. Mm -hmm. One of the things that caught my attention was the claim that a lot of times these injuries uh, from elf shot are not inflicted directly by fairies or elves themselves. Davidson cites an author named Louis writing that there's a belief among some that fairies have to use humans as intermediaries in order to inflict these injuries. Since the fairies have little power to cause direct physical injury to animal bodies themselves. So sometimes these stories say humans are like sucked up into the air by fairies and then given fairy weapons and then forced to shoot at men or cattle. Hmm. So, yeah. Okay. So sort of possession going on here. 
Yeah, one example of this is a story called The Tale of Black Donald of the Fairy Throng. Uh, and this is a story where there's this guy named Donald and he's out plowing. He's plowing the land. He's working in the furrows. And, uh, this is on the Isle of Tyree, which is off the, the coast of Scotland and Donald he's, he's plowing and he gets, uh, sucked up by a fairy convoy. And, uh, and then he, they force him to drop an arrow from the sky that kills a speckled cow. And this actually connects with uh, some of the, the critical stuff I was reading uh, about the elf shot tradition, which says that actually in a lot of these stories, it is being alleged that it's humans who are doing the inflicting like witches mm. or something who are in- inflicting uh, damage with these weapons rather than elves directly. Interesting. And in the end, this it gets into a common trope in many cultures of the of sort of the, like the outsider within, somebody within the community, either somebody from outside the community or somebody within the community that has been corrupted somehow. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. One thing I had to mention just because it was funny, there, there's a long section of this uh, paper that talks about uh, alleged cures for Elfshot, and one is a recorded anecdote of a wise woman curing a cow in the Shetlands by uh, asking the crofter, the, the farmer, to bring her a Bible and he brings the Bible and she rips pages out of the Bible and balls them up into a pellet and then crams the Bible page pellet into a dimple in the cow's skin. Then there's another one I have to share because it involves crabs and, and <laughs> raises a mystery for me that I cannot solve. So maybe the listeners have some input on this. So this is from a source Davidson sites called Shetland Folklore. Uh, this is a book by Spence. And uh, I'm going to read directly from Davidson's summary here. Oh, and sorry, this is still about uh, traditions in the Shetlands. Uh, Quote, A variant prescription from the same area directs the wise woman to take tar, a needle, a Bible, a firebrand, and some fairy crabs. Waving the burning brand, she walked three times Wittershins round the cow. That means counterclockwise. Uh, three times Wittershins round the cow, jabbing the animal with the needle, waving a leaf of the Bible over its back, and muttering an incantation. The firebrand was placed in a pot of tar and set at the cow's head so the fumes would make her cough. She was then given the fairy crabs to eat alive. The ashes of the firebrand were later mixed with the tar into three pills, which were administered to the animal on three successive mornings. Whoa. What? <laughs> so it involves eating the fairy crabs alive. It's, it says she, and I'm sorry, it, I'm not sure if that means the the cow or the wise woman. I think that means the cow. Yeah, I, I remember reading this in the source during the initial research phase, and I could not figure out what fairy crabs were. I was like, and yeah. I, I, it was, I was trying, my mind was struggling to form. I was just imagining like a glowing blue crab. I was confused too, and I tried to look this up. There is an animal called a fairy crab. Uh, you can see it if you Google that phrase, but it, it's clearly not what this is referring to because it's a species of uh, squat lobster called uh the scientific name is loria uh siagiani and it's native to the pacific it's found like off the coast of australia and uh and indonesia i think so this is clearly not what they're talking about in the shetlands and i was trying to find more information and i just could not so i wonder if this refers to i don't know if this is a local 
Shetland name for a certain type of animal, like an actual crab or some type of insect or something. I, I really have no idea. Yeah, I can imagine it going in different directions. Some sort of novel crab that's found on the shore or or turned up in nets or or indeed something that is found uh uh, you know, in uh, in streams, or is not a crab at all, but some sort of a, an insect with some sort of folk medicine properties to it. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, certainly we have examples in in plenty of cultures where if something is named after an animal but is not itself an animal, it could be you know you you could imagine a situation where the fairy crab is actually some sort of a root, uh, something mm. to that effect. So there's so many different directions it could go in, not you know not knowing exactly what this is referring to. Well, hey, listeners, if you got insight on this, you know what the fairy crabs are right in. (laughs) (laughs) One last subject that Davidson brings up with respect to elf shot is the idea of uh, of curved plow furrows and ridges in order to, quote, wander the fairy, which I found so interesting. It's the idea that if you, you go throughout Scotland and you look at some old cultivated fields, you'll find that, you know, these places that are... Uh, they're, they're dug with a, what's known as like a ridge and furrow system. Mm -hmm. So you'll see a series of basically, you know, lines where like you'd have a plowed area and then like a sort of ridge of, of moved earth piled up in between them. And an interesting thing about a lot of these is they're created with, with, uh, so that the ridges and the furrows are not straight lines, but are curved or crooked or S shaped even. And it is believed by some that the purpose of this is to confuse or quote wander the fairy to uh, to maybe lead the fairy off course or lead the elf off course. Uh, this is not the only system, by the way, that would use this. Like uh, Davidson notes that a lot of amulets that are designed for protection against fairies have arrays of kind of spiral patterns or, or can, you know, complex whirls within them or labyrinths or something. And this is designed to confuse the, the evil spirits to kind of send them on a, on a maze like journey that will lead them astray and keep them from harming you. These, if, if you haven't seen these ridge and furrow features, uh, definitely look them up and do an image search because you can see lots of wonderful uh, aerial f- photographs of this uh, sort of thing. And yeah, you can sort of imagine the trail of the, uh, of the elf uh, going astray here. Um, oh, some of the ones you're looking at are the curved ones because some mm-hmm. are just straight, but others are Yeah, curved. some are just straight, but uh, yeah, I was looking at one in particular here where you do see, well, you kind of see a mix in this particular one. You see the different areas of land and definite curves in some areas where it, and, and one kind of has like almost like a fern look because you have the, the line going down the middle and then you have some like like different wavings on each side. So the magical understanding here, again, is that this well, it could throw fairies off just generally because, you know, you, you, you make twisting paths in order to confuse evil spirits. But the other thing would be it doesn't allow them to get a clear straight line shot at the cattle, like at the oxen mm-hmm. that you're using to plow the field. Yeah, this is strange. Like this idea of the elf is kind of like this. Uh, uh, you know, I guess it, it, you, you look at different folklore systems. It's like you want to avoid doing things that draw attention to yourself. You know, you, we definitely see that with uh, elf and fairy folk traditions and in this part of the world with uh, the wearing of green, which we've discussed before. Don't wear the green. That's the color of the elves or the fairies. They'll come yeah. at you. Uh, you also see that with traditions of the evil eye in uh, the Middle East where there are various things like you should not do because this invisible nefarious force is out there in the world. 
and you do not want it aware of your presence or your fortune. So you don't, right. don't, don't get on its radar. Don't have direct lines leading to you. Be that line something like, you know, you shouting about how beautiful your child is. Um, you know, in the case of some of the, the evil eye traditions, uh, in, particularly in Judaism, I remember uh, hearing about, uh, reading about. Um, or, or in this case, like a physical line through the altered landscape. Uh, I, I think this type of belief is still present even in like modern day Christianity. Like uh, I remember when I was a kid hearing about the dangers of playing with a Ouija board and the mm -hmm. idea was it attracts demonic attention. I mean, it's yeah. literally like the, it's, it's like when you play with a Ouija board, it's not so much something about the board is evil, but it, it sort of like puts up a beacon to demons that says, Hey, I'm available, uh, you know, pay attention to me and they will hone in on you because you have done that. Yeah. Oh, and quick note, I mentioned Judaism and the, the evil eye and so forth. The, the evil eye is not necessarily like a part of Judaism. I don't want to imply that, but it is something that is sort of in the folkloric traditions of various peoples in the Middle East, including you'll see that in Judaic culture. Yeah. And certainly we see similar case with, with this here, because we have people who are discussing that have taken, a, you know, that have converted to Christianity, and but they're still they're still practicing beliefs. They're still engaging in belief of the elves, but they're also incorporating in some of these Christian traditions. Like, well, maybe, maybe, you know, wad up a, a Bible uh, page and stick it in into that furrow in the cow and that'll help too. This is, uh, this next thing is not really addressed in Davidson, but I was wondering about this uh, uh, because I was reading about the ridge and furrow system elsewhere after, uh, after reading this passage from Davidson. And it seems to me that sometimes the 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 strips that are plowed in this system are curved for totally mundane reasons that have nothing to do with magical beliefs. I think that they're they're often curved just because of uh, the, it was a sort of necessary consequence of the types of plow rigging and and oxen pulling teams that they used at the time. They would lead to a, a furrow or a ridge being kind of like curved off at each end every time the the team turned around to make a new line. Uh, and that makes me wonder if something like twisting, twisting in these rows could have originally been a totally mundane thing that somebody saw. And then in trying to explain <laughs> why it was like that without understanding it, they came up with this explanation about confusing the fairies. And then afterwards did, did it like that on purpose? So it's like, like. Somebody like the the landowner, whoever comes out to check on the the work, is like Dale. What's going on with these ridges and furrows? Look at look at it. It's just like I can tell it's crooked. And Dale's like, Well, do you want the fairies coming straight at you? <laughs> I didn't think so. You're welcome. I, this, of course, also reminds me of on one hand this, and this may well be connected. Uh, the uh, the idea that vampires uh, might be deterred by uh, hanging some sort of a knotted item or, or carefully woven item out for them, like mm -hmm. a complex pattern that will draw their attention and they have to deal with, and maybe get they'll either spend all their time doing that and leave you alone, or perhaps they'll even get caught in the sunlight. They'll lose track of time. And then, of course, I, I can't help but think of crop circles as well, uh, which, uh, again, as we've discussed, I think we've discussed this on the show before. I mean, crop crop circles are pretty much put to bed uh, as a, um, uh, you know, as, as the, the work of human uh, actors. But thinking about like sort of the draw to do this to a field, like the human um, intention to do this. And there are, there are several factors that can play into that, some of which may actually come up in our next episode of Such to Blow Your Mind. But... Um, uh, but the um, 
the, the idea of like just seeing that field. Like, I wonder if there's some sort of draw that like, no, the lines are too, too perfect. Everything is just too pristine. Like this, 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 this land has been too finely transformed. We got to get some swirls in there. We got to get some circles, you know? Mm, yeah, th- that is a good comparison. I didn't think you were going to crop circles though. I thought you were going to mention the, the Jiangxi being, uh, being warded off by spilling glutinous rice on the floor because they'll i think they'll be counting the grains right oh yeah that that also that's a good point as well i'd forgotten about that one something about yeah the the inhuman analytical mind of the the, of of non-human beings and in folklore and that they're they can be led astray by and by either random randomized patterns or things of, of human creation that have some sort of elegance to them which is kind of ironic given that we're talking about situations where human beings may in some cases have just like completely flipped their wig over finding uh, an old flint arrow in the dirt. Uh, uh-huh. So I guess it cuts both ways. Mother's Day is right around the corner. And in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Uh Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, there's one more paper I wanted to briefly mention that gets way more into the weeds about a particular text that is believed or has been believed to reference Elfshot. Uh, But I thought this was interesting, too. So this was a paper... 
by a professor of English at the University of Leeds named Alaric Hall called Calling the Shots, the Old English Remedy, uh, Gif Horse of Scotton Sea, and Anglo-Saxon Elf Shot, published in 2005. So, this paper is mainly an attempt to critically re-examine an Anglo-Saxon text called Gift Horse of Scotensee, which is a passage from a medieval Anglo-Saxon medical text that has been widely interpreted as being about elf shot. The title, Gift Horse of Scotensee, translates to If a Horse Be, and then the word is Of Scotten, and the question is, what does Ofscotten mean? It's been traditionally translated as elfshot, if a horse be elfshot. Hall argues that it should not be understood that way, and yet there are still references to elf attacks within the passage. So uh, this is Hall's translation of this text, which is interesting in itself. If a horse be Ofscotten, Take then a dagger whose haft is of fallow ox's horn, and in which there are three brass nails. And then there's a term that every time is, is rendered as write slash inscribe. I'm just going to say inscribe. Okay. Inscribe on the horse, on the forehead, Christ's mark, so it bleeds. Inscribe then Christ's mark on the spine and on each of the limbs which you can grasp. This shall you do. Take a staff, strike on the back, then the horse will be well. And inscribe on the dagger's handle these words, Benedicite Omnia Opera Domini Dominum, uh, which means bless all the works of the Lord of Lords. Should it be Alf's, which is on it, this will do as a remedy for it. And so Hall makes the argument in this paper that the, the primary condition being described in this text under the word Ofscotten should not be translated as elf shot as it traditionally has been, uh, but it's something like badly pained. It's more a more mundane condition that is prompting this entire remedy. However, even if that's correct, the last line of the remedy does mention the idea of this word alpha, uh, the A-E combined vowel and then L-F-E. Uh, though this sentence is also kind of difficult to translate, the one that's got the alpha in it. I think the, tr the understanding that makes the most sense is this whole remedy is for regular bad pain in horses. And then there's an additional remedy, the one that's uh, writing on the dagger's handle, the words, bless all the works of the Lord of Lords. Uh, that additional remedy is like a special extra dose of holiness that should be applied if the cause of the horse's pain is injury by an elf, though it doesn't explain how you tell the difference between normal bad pain and bad pain caused by an elf. You know, of course, the, the elf injury being even more unholy and requiring more holiness or, or more piety in order to undo. Either way you shake it from a modern perspective, it's a lot of uh, uh, cutting and striking of a pained horse. Yeah, geez. You feel bad for the horse. Yeah. Now, as we, uh, as we, as we go to close out uh, this look at Elf Shot, I did want to come back to some basic questions, uh, some of which we've already got into, uh, concerning the archaeology of Elf Shot. Uh, 
who were the people who made these artifacts and how did they get to the regions where the artifacts were found? And then, of course, you know, interpreted and reinterpreted within these folkloric traditions. Uh, this, of course, is a broad question because, as we've, we've mentioned already, we're talking about multiple areas. We're talking about locations throughout the British Isles and even outside of the British Isles. Uh, but just limiting the question to the British Isles, we're still looking at close to a million years of occupation by various human species, including Neanderthals. And as for the how they got there, the predominant theories involved land bridges between Europe and Britain that were present at the time. And regarding Ireland, I've seen hypotheses that involve boats, land bridges, and also ice bridges. Mm -hmm. But uh, just to give a few examples that really sort of drive home the, the, the time we're talking about here, uh, there are stone tool and footprints in Norfolk that date back an estimated 900,000 years. Uh, and these would be the work and, the, and or the footprints of uh, Homo antecessor. Notable here are the Happisburg footprints in Norfolk and also a black flint hand axe was also found in this area. So uh, Homo antecessor, they were makers of simple stone tools. And it looks like many uh, um, experts think that they might not have had mastery of fire. Hmm. By 4000 BCE, a Neolithic culture was firmly established on the British Isles and lasted till roughly, uh, this is just, you know, the, the rough time period of our histories, uh, 2500 BCE. And of course, between 3000 BCE and 2000 BCE, we see the construction of Stonehenge, one, of course, the most famous, if not the most famous testament to prehistoric Britain. And of course, even Stonehenge gets wrapped up into various folklore traditions and folkloric interpretations and reinterpretations that involve at times the wizard Merlin, but also uh, the, the Christian devil. And uh, even during the Roman period, which would have been roughly 43 CE to 410 CE, uh, the Roman sky god Calus. Uh, more realistically, or more on the sort of, uh, you know, realistic interpretation and reinterpretation uh, standpoint, it was at one point thought to, to be credited uh, to the work of uh, Druidic culture, but this culture didn't exist till 300 BCE, which would have been too late. So the stones were already ancient history to the Druids. Mm. Now, another example that I found really interesting of uh, talking about found arrowheads uh, in the British Isles. In 2016, archaeologists from the University of Reading discovered a 4,500-year-old flint arrowhead a few miles from Stonehenge. And according to David Dawson, director of the Wiltshire Museum, this particular arrowhead is not only finely preserved, but incredibly fragile suggesting that it was never actually intended for use in war or hunting, but was rather ceremonial or decorative and or decorative. Um, it, this was, uh, you can look up images of this. There were some news articles at the time. The arrowhead was unearthed in two parts, two different digs, five years apart. And it is quite elegant looking. It has like one, it has barbs, but one really long barb, an elongated barb on one side. So I don't know about you, but I find that really interesting because it, I think it's easy to think of folkloric interpretation of uh, found objects to be a luxury of later civilizations on the British Isles, to think supernaturally about, about, these, about these items. But certainly, and certainly there's a lot we don't know about concerning pre-Roman and prehistoric Britain. But even uh, 4,500 years ago, uh, this find would suggest that people here were already capable of sublime interpretations and, uh, and perhaps mystical meanings for their own created artifacts. That you could have this, 
this sacred arrow uh, that wasn't found, that was made, uh, but so some of the same energy that goes into the, uh, the, the interpretation of these artifacts, uh, you know, thousands of years later, was already present in the cultures uh, that made their home here. Right. And so we don't know what it would have been used for, but it's clear that it would not have been useful for actual shooting of an arrow. So, right. you're, you know, it could be decorative, it could be medicinal, some kind of amulet, it could be magical or ceremonial. We don't know. But in any case, it would be a symbolic arrowhead rather than than one used for the literal direct mundane purpose. Yeah. And so you can imagine at some point in, in history after this point, uh, if someone were to find an arrowhead like this, especially, I mean, any arrowhead, obviously, any kind of novel lump of stone um, uh, could find itself interpreted as an elf arrow and, and, and incorporated into elf shot folklore. But imagine if you found this, you know, clearly an, an arrow that, that looks too fine to be shot, you know, that's almost uh, ephemeral in its uh, construction. Like, who would make this? Why would they make this? Clearly, this is the work of the elves. <laughs> but also, I think it's just, yeah, it's just worth uh, remembering the, the, the deep history of, uh, of, of people on the British Isles. You know, it might not be as deep as, uh, as some other areas. I like, you know, you're looking at what, in France, I think it's what, 1.57 million years ago, we have some of the earliest known evidence of human beings. Uh, but still, you have human species uh, on the British Isles, uh, uh, you know, the, the, as early as almost a million years ago, different species, different cultures, different waves of technology and arrivals in the subsequent centuries and millennium, uh, millennia, and of course, different waves of interpretation and reinterpretation of what came before. Mm -hmm. All right, we're going to go ahead and close it out there, but obviously we'd love to hear from everyone out there. We'd especially love to hear from uh, folks uh, listening to the show on the British Isles or folks who have spent time on the British Isles, perhaps you have some tidbits, some local lore to share with us. If so, we'd love to hear from you. A uh, reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a uh, pr primarily a science podcast that publishes on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. But on Mondays, we do a listener mail episode where we, we read various missives from uh, our listeners. On Wednesdays, we do a short form artifact or monster fact. On Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you. 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.